Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 44, Denny Palmer Wolf, Oxygen in the Bloodstream, Act 2, recorded March 5th and April 23rd, 2021. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply To people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives aloud are the only roads you can see Just remember who walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Irishy Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Munsee Lenape peoples in what is currently called Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, your colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player, including Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you haven't already, check out the newly redesigned teachingartistry.org website. It's got a new look. It's more user-friendly. It's basically your one-stop shop for episodes, guest bios, uh, video series, and the new new feature, e-zines, for a deeper dive into each episode. And of course, the Teaching Artistry podca- uh, pod shop for merch so for full transparency denny and i got together twice to round out this interview and so this episode is actually a mix of both visits in this act we hear more about denny's college and a graduate experience um, and emerging into the research field we also discuss the idea of imagination justice, specifically tackling um, injustices in our school systems, um, focusing on early childhood education and community college. She also asks me a question that sends me into full-on storytelling mode. Here is episode 44, Act 2, Denny Palmer Wolf, Oxygen in the Bloodstream. I'm, I, I don't know this part of your story, um, around how you became a researcher. Oh, um, let's see. Long, long story made short. Um, not an artist went to, um, undergraduate and then graduate school. And in graduate school, became very interested in um, child development. 
um, especially uh, language development and particularly narrative, the way people tell their stories. Mm. And uh, I worked for a long time at Project Zero. Um, yeah, where a lot of arts research gets done. So that's the cradle of it. Did you did you go to Harvard? Mm-hmm. That's where you went to grad school, Harvard. Yeah. So the untold part of my story is as an undergrad, I got married and they wouldn't let married students be on campus. Um, I mean, you couldn't be married and be on campus. Yeah. And so I dropped out. So I have no college degree. Yeah. So Swarthmore, a uh, small liberal. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I dropped out. So I have no college degree. So, but wait, I don't understand. How did you get into grad school then? You know, talk fast. Listen, you have this similar story as Michael Wiggins. You, do you know Michael Wiggins? Well, just from your, yeah. Oh my God, you, you, would, you would love Michael Wiggins actually. Um, it's same. Like, I think, I think he told this story that, you know, he, he went to NYU, did not end up finishing. I can't remember why, but then got, has a, has a degree, a master's degree. <laughs> and it was that same sort of like, I did all the work. I just didn't do it. I didn't finish it with a paper. That's it. Piece of paper. But yeah. So child development into the research field. Was this a, was this a, a a male dominated field when you entered it? Uh, No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, child development, pretty maybe even female dominated. Uh, Yeah. And when did you, when did you start? Like what's the journey between the starting point working, working at project zero and Wolf Brown? Oh, so I worked at project zero for 10 years, um, did research and things there. Um, then I went on to teach at the college level. Uh, I taught some at the ed school, um, at Brown. Um, and then I realized, uh, I am curious, I am energetic, but I am not cut out for academics as it gets practiced. Um, and, um, that the distance between academic life, research life, and real life can be pretty big. And then I was actually interested in doing work on the ground. Mm-hmm. So Wolf Brown is a way to do work on the ground, um, to actually roll up your sleeves and do projects. Yeah, and, and you actually, you know, like, you were talking about earlier you actually go into the schools go into the places and do the actual observing and then analysis and and having your partner Stephen Hollowitz who I will never forget the first time I met him 
and was like, like, so, so if you came in swooshed in with your, with your flowiness, him with his like full suit, full suit and like, I don't know, like nerd alert ways. <laughs> It was just like, what have we got ourselves into? What is this? <laughs> um, yeah, two just like, I mean, if, if we could have been animated, it would have been amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, I am curious. I'm so curious about this. I've always wanted to ask, but anytime we were in the same room together, it was to get work done. So I'm asking now, like, what? what it, what happens in your work like how does it work do you like like how many people are work for wolf brown like how many projects are you all doing do you get together in a room like a laboratory and say okay this is what i'm working on and then people like pick it up pick at it with their, your your lab coats or or you're just doing your own thing and you say yeah we're working over here have a good time over there yeah so um wolf brown is um sort of a confederation of different shops. Mm -hmm. So you also know like Alan Brown's work and his colleagues who do um, market research and those kinds of things. So that's one arm of it. Um, there's another arm of it that does strategic planning, um, organizational plans, succession plans, that kind of thing. Um, and then there's the portion of Wolf Brown that Stephen and I represent, which is really about, um, we like to say it's about amplifying opportunity. So it's about who in the world gets to have an imagination. Um, so it's really research tied to concerns about equity. Who gets arts education? Who gets to get into a youth orchestra, et cetera? Mm -hmm. So there is a team of us, currently four of us. So Stephen, myself, Kathleen Hill, and Henry Platt, who all work intensively on that set of issues. Mm -hmm. um, and it pro the work comes in in two major ways. One is um, that people come to us like you did and say, we're looking for somebody, show up, audition. We'll say, yes, don't call us, we'll call you, that kind of thing. So that's really... Uh, you know, sort of work work for hire if you like to think about it that way. But it's you know, it's not unlike theater work. You come, you one of you has to dress up as a scientist nerd. One of you has to dress up as a flowing nutcase, and you audition for the part. Um, so there's that kind of, um, and then there's also going out and searching actively for work. So um, we're very excited. Um, we applied recently to the National Endowment of the Arts um, for one of their, to be one of their um, national research labs. Ooh. So um, we learned only a couple of months ago um, that 
we got it. Yeah. So we are partnering um, and uh, also with a woman whose name is Ellie Brown at Westchester University. Um, all of us being really interested in um, a much um, bolder definition of socio-emotional skills. That's where um, my tirade earlier comes from. Um, and the arts is a context in which to gain social and emotional skills that are both about control. I mean, I'm not a fan of punching walls, but they are about that kind of modulation, but also about knowing when to stand up, when to be expressive, how to be expressive, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So that's the second way that work comes. We actively apply or seek opportunities like that. And, um, you know, are those, those different arms, do they talk to each other? Like, is there an anchor? We, we as an institution are interested in equity or, and we look at that through these different yeah, pathways. Is that yeah. how it works? Um, so there is an anchor in the sense of every part of Wolf Brown is interested in the issue of who gets access to arts and culture. Um, in, you know, in, in different ways. Um, so I, I would say that's quite, no, I would say it's really widely, widely, widely shared. Some people think about it in terms of how do you build leadership, which has those values. Some people think about it, you know, in the, in the research sense that Stephen and I do who's getting it, who's not getting it, what are the consequences of getting it that, you know, all kids should have, all families should have access to. And do you have conversations about what constitutes arts and culture? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, so, you know, there's the sort of what I like to call the crimson and gold definition. You know, it's like your beautiful theater, built institutions, um, very finely made work. Um, but um, I would say Stephen and I in particular have a a real commitment to um, thinking about arts and culture very broadly. So public libraries, outdoor performances. Um, and I, in particular, am really interested in sort of everyday expressions of imagination. So deinstitutionalized. So um, behind me, I don't know if you can see, but there's a whole sort of set of things picked up by the roadside from like yard sales and stuff, yeah. which are 
you know, the crazy things that people build in their garages. Yeah. Um, so that's not crimson and gold. That's just ordinary people who have the wit and the gumption and the insight to make something funny, beautiful, something that works. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the question is, to what extent are we willing to build a world in which, because everybody has those impulses. Mm. You know, to what extent are we willing to build a world in which those impulses can flourish for everyone, not just a few people? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, walking down your street, you see people who invent things, right? So the, the sorts of sculptures that people build in order to save their parking space in the snow, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, or the, they're like the gardens. I, I, there's a gentleman on my block. Uh, my block has a mixture of large buildings and ho and houses or homes. And um, there's a gentleman in a row of, of townhouses that, he takes very like beautiful painstaking care of the garden in, in the front yard and he's growing mint and basil and happily shares it with those of us who walk by or at least pre pandemic he did. And I think about that, like what does that do for him? The, the caretaking itself, the sort of plotting and making, making it, you know, work and, and understanding the soil and the water needs and whatever else that I don't understand about, you know, bonding uh, or gardening. And then the idea of like built, like that it ends up creating community because of his sharing of, of the, whatever he's growing in his garden. Um, and the fact that he's made that choice to have it in the front and not in the back, you know, perfect, perfect example. And then there's another house. Yeah, there's another house that is literally sandwiched between two very large buildings. And it's it's like one of those old colonial homes, too. And there they have just created like all sorts of different sculptures and different things in their front yard. And 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 they use their top porch as a message, a messenger. So it was about voting and it was about Black Lives Matter. And then, you know, it was talking yeah. about how you are. So and then there's a chalkboard and there's messages on that. You know, it, And, you know, and one of the things that, you know, thinking about those gifts of the of this moment is I have lived in this neighborhood for. A, uh, I moved here in 2011, so 10 years but I didn't live in this neighborhood until this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would hang out at the you know at the local pubs and the up a coffee shop and whatever on a weekend or something. But I didn't I didn't live in this neighborhood until this year. Um, and and these are the things that I'm seeing in this time in this year and and getting to know those folks, you know, as cursory or as deeper and depending and that art that you know and that joy and that community that I see. Um, 
and manifest in, in many ways within this, uh, in this particular community and then, you know, in, or neighborhood. And I, I am sure it manifests el- elsewhere. And then I'm thinking about cultural arts and, and uh, the celebrations and, and joy that can happen from um, food and, you know, things that are just woven into the nature of how you interact with your family as our arts and culture, you know, and that's why I was asking that question too, is just like, I, I, um, you know, one of the things that I really, really support, um, mainly because it was an example, like my first day at the new victory, (laughs) the show was called cooking and it was, a a, um, a drumming show from a company that was based in Korea. And, these kids were literally bouncing out of their seats. First day, first day I'm at this Ed show and kids are going wild and they're having a great time. And I didn't feel like they were being told to sit down or, you know, be quiet. And I just thought I have made the best decision of my life because I want kids to feel like they're able to be kids wherever they are and here, especially. And, so, you know, over time and then once I became, you know, director, I realized like, oh, you know, we don't necessarily message that out to the teachers because there's a lot of shushing in the, in the, and we don't necessarily need that. Yes, we want there to be respect. Yes, yes, all those things. But we also want that authenticity of how kids process, especially in New York City, right? So we came up with this whole thing and messaging at the top of every school year to remind folks you know, who are bringing and to please share this. And it would, so I think it's a part of like the, the field trip tip sheet of like, remember that we love the oohs and the ahs and the laughs and the giggles. And we want them to be chatting with each other about what they're seeing on stage. So, you know, be mindful of that. No need. It's a no hush zone. That's <laughs> what we called it. And I recently had heard somebody talking about how these larger institutions are really about, uh, you know, who are working with black and brown kids or, you know, yeah, black and brown kids about indoctrinating them in white supremacist, you know, behaviors about sitting quietly in a in theater or, you know, being able to be quiet in a museum or, and I, so anyway, it, it warms me to hear what you're talking about, <laughs> what I'm saying, I guess, and how I want, I want to, I want to. I don't know if this is a study, but I am curious about like having that conversation about what, what are the expected behaviors? Like the, we see you white American theater talks about not policing audiences. And then in our context, we've got young people who are black and Brown mainly who are the front of house team who are policing audiences, but then, but then also being policed by the audiences based off of the, of, of the, dynamic of you know the intergenerational piece but also the cultural and the and the racial piece um and so as something that we need to as we start to you know especially open back up like we have to address that anyway so i'm tying all these things together but yeah it's just good one of the things that you you had said that you were listening to biden um talking about expanding pre-K and early childhood education as well as expansion around community college and I'm going to be frank I haven't I haven't been as honed in in this moment but could you could you expound upon this idea and, and and where you see arts engagement embedding 
in these education realms? Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm naive and hopeful or too hopeful, but you know, there, there will be a new investment in schools uh, and in schooling. So, you know, new roofs, new front stairs, that kind of thing. But I'm really hoping that there will also be a new investment in understanding that schools are communities of people, families, teachers, kids, and that what goes on in schools can't just be academic. It has to sit on a foundation of relationships, interactions, being in, you know, school has to be like the best health clinic or like the best branch library. It has to be in its community. It has to know the people who come across the doors. Right. Anyway, so, I mean, I think there's that kind of reinvestment that I, I am really hoping happens. And I think there's an, uh, an incredible opportunity there for the arts to play a role in that. Um, they often, not always, they're crappy art, um, make visible kids, first of all, their joy, their delight, their energy, and to build schools back into places where movement, singing, even running around is okay. Mm. And not something you get you know, sent to the front office for. But very often they are, there are occasions when kids, when families can be very proud of their kids um, and they are, you know, it's not just when you're the star of the show, but you know, when you're one of 40 kids in a chorus singing a song or you're part of a dance line or any of, any of those things. And we know that those are the kinds of events that bring parents to school much more than back to math night. So, really seizing this opportunity when people might understand the role of social and emotional learning and anchoring it with the arts or using the arts to help anchor it um, and to establish much more appreciative relationships between families, kids, and school. So I hope that reinvestment happens. But also I hope that we get back a notion of say preschool, which is about playing mm -hmm. and about being active and about being able to be with other people effectively. And that that's what preschool is about. And, you know, there's an amazing role for the arts. I mean, whether it's you know, block building or tag or singing in a group, but there's a, 
you know, a very powerful role for the arts to play there. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, let's imagine that community college gets to be free and open. But I mean, imagine if the part of community college, um, young people really had an opportunity to be an adult in the world on their own, but part of their education was about going out in the community and seeing things, whether it's historic places or plays or going on Sunday morning to the you know to a fantastic congregation where there's a choir, but that part of what they learned and part of what they did in community college wasn't only sort of trade school, but it was like how to be an active and engaged adult in your community, which might include things like using the cultural resources, knowing the public transportation system, understanding how to vote, understanding how not to be kept from voting. Mm -hmm. Imagine that we used those two years post high school for young people in those ways. And I think that those are both the really early and the young adulthood are, are places where if we got in there and did good work, um, we could be looking at um, both a much better foundation for early learning, but a much more actively engaged adult population. So that's, that's why, that's why I care about it. I, I mean, I, I, I think it's important to care about without a doubt. I, I, I just wanted to understand the connection um, and understanding that spectrum is, is important. Um, I, in, in New York city, there is a universal pre-K um, and the goal is to expand um the 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 program from um for four-year-olds i think i think the seats are somewhere between 70 to seventy-five thousand for four-year-olds and currently for three-year-olds um that that preschool age um it's only in certain districts it's not across all districts and so the i the goal is by 2023 it'll it'll be all districts will have free education as part of the department of education um, for three-year-olds and the way to do that is actually to do to work with a cross-section of types of centers um in in you know public school buildings as well as um community-based building uh, uh centers and the kind of and family exactly family daycare some charters and some um um, like um, religious-based schools as well. And and what I find fascinating about what I've learned um, in the last seven or so years that the that education sector has been growing and working specifically with the Division of Early Childhood Education 
um, one is how much they care, <laughs> like a lot, um, how the standards are really, I mean, they're standards, but it's about, it's really predicated on play-based learning and relationships and age appropriate, um, approaches. Um, the idea of having like open ended materials as opposed to sort of cookie cutter, um, in terms of arts making, that's very specifically visual arts, but, um, that concept of like everything looking uniform and perfect is, is seemingly, seemingly out you know, really let letting three and three and four year olds express themselves as they're learning about the world in whatever way that they need to. And I, I, I don't know if you know about um, woke kindergarten. Have you heard of this? So the, there's a there's a a person named um, Key um, who runs woke kindergarten and. Um, uh, is really an abolitionist, uh, in, in the most amazingly amazing way. And so I just like clicked into her, into their Twitter, um, where they're on, they're on Insta. I believe they have a, a website as well, but on, uh, <laughs> it's really fascinating. Cause like, there's no, uh, there's no holding back, you know? So threes, fours, five, six, seven year olds shouldn't be, you know, obviously centered, but also you don't, you know, the world is, is definitely happening around them and to try and like pretend like it's not doesn't quite make sense. So I'm looking at a, a, a couple of images on their slide on their Twitter versus liberation is the goal. And it's got this like beautiful little one dresses as super, some sort of superhero. Um, abolition is the journey. And then another image is, okay, the vision, a global abolitionist, early, uh, early learning community, creative expanse and consultancy supporting children, families, educators, and organizations in their commitment to abolitionist early child, early education and pro black queer and trans liberation. So when you talk about the arts, like to me, it's like we all have to be really leaning towards the abolitionist model. And, and it's not even a model. It's like the, you know, the goal, liberation. <laughs> and when you then talk about the other side of the spectrum of community school and really like how are we supporting young people who are entering into the world to be engaged in that world and actually, you know, give space to say this world is yours um and the arts can be absolutely can be and should be a part of that but then you also talked about like that that freedom of expression so i'm going to this other image on that site that says the problem um the problem uh is the prison industrial complex manifests in early childhood in a variety of ways and anti-racist teaching and reform just isn't disruptive enough right and then there's this image of school and a prison and I have to make it bigger because I can't read it but it's so on the school like it's literally like the a bulleted point a bullet pointed okay so first there's currently an or authoritarian structure so we need to change that there's a dress code these are things that happen in both spaces so we're literally preparing four-year-olds for 
something that could potentially and does happen, right? The idea of of negative reinforcement or walking in lines, being quiet, um, not having input on on decision making, you know, being forced upon, um, set times for walking or eating or napping or whatever the things are, and it it just like that 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 when you put it in that frame, because you always you hear pipeline, you hear that. But what does it actually mean and for them to like break it down? Well, and make it so visual and so pun- And the idea of like punishment, confinement, and humanization, dehumanization. So let's let like if we are thinking about that spectrum, because at any time on that spectrum, a young person could, you know, be seen gone from cute to a threat in yes. some way. But also, I mean, you know, at the other end, at the community college end, mm-hmm. I think we have to be as as woke, as vigilant, because mm-hmm. it shouldn't. If if this opportunity opens up, it shouldn't just be trade school. Yeah. It shouldn't just be training young people to be the good doobie at IBM or Starbucks or whatever else. I mean, it really has to be, you know, how, how, how to think about voting, how to resist if you're told you can't vote. It has to be asking questions in a public meeting. It has to, I mean, it really has to be about engaging in the world. Um, not just- but I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I'm, I'm actually here for it. I really like it, but I'm curious about who, does, who, who is going to get trained to change the way that system is set up currently, right? So if the idea is about, enga- like, there's a, there's a statistic already that, like, one in three community college students graduates. Right. Um, so how are we working towards changing or dismantling that? Um, is This is one way. I, li- I like this, that there's a variety of ways to enter into a learning process. But I, it, it makes me think about the people, the people who impart that. Like, who is that? <laughs> yeah, but also you have to raise... High school students who are bold and strong and talk back and ask questions and ask to do independent study. I mean, so can't all be on the shoulder. I mean, kids from woke kindergarten need to go to woke elementary, need to go to woke middle, need to go to woke high. Um, so, you know, it's a whole systems responsibility. Um, and, you know, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it means that the educators, meaning everybody, I mean, the principal, the vice principal, the nurse, the librarian, the God forbid security people, all, all, all have to think about young people in a different way, not in the sense of, 
um, keeping them under control, making sure they get, you know, their credits, that they get disciplined if they don't, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I was listening to an interview with a young woman the other day who didn't go, chose not to go to college. The um, wasn't for her. She was working as a um, as a barista. Um, did not love it. Um, Anyway, she started to do some like temp work at a, a tech company. Anyway, to make a very long story short, she realized that while she didn't have the piece of paper, she had the curiosity about what was going on there. And she began teaching herself coding on the, on the web and got enough to start asking questions at the place where she was, you know, answering the phones. Mm. And, you know, she, I mean, her point was what she needed was the energy and the curiosity and she could do a lot of learning on her own, but she needed that, that conviction. Um, yeah, so that it seems to me that's what community college has to has to be about honoring that kind of energy and curiosity in young people, and in having not a narrow sort of you know job piece of paper point of view, but we you know this is an experience which is really a like a hallway to adulthood. You know, it's yeah. not. Um, it's not piece of paper-ish. Um, yeah, and a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I, I wanted to round out that the, there was a fourth slide here. Um, that's really, it's like, you know, a bit of a, this is, who, this is what we do. Um, but the solution, we create abolitionist, early child re uh, childhood resources to curate opportunities for children to feel affirmed, safe, loved, and empowered, and educate their adults on how to, to engage them, to eliminate carceral logics in order to liberate our communities. So, I mean, I feel like what you're you're bringing up here is is this you know this last piece about eliminating the carceral logics and yeah. that's that's that is systemic without it no and what's what's the responsibility of the arts yeah to be a force in that system whether it's for three-year-olds mm -hmm. or or at community college level um both as partners to those institutions, um, as teaching artists, as teachers, etc. Mm. You know, um, because I think you know one of the things good arts education can do is to be disruptive mm. in that way and to talk about the world that needs to be created 
not the world as it is. Well, that that takes me to this other thought that you were like, what about this? <laughs> the idea of like um, going from arts education, like you said, there should be a f- there, that arts can be a force to this idea of imagination justice. What, tell me more about that. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I don't think we do ourselves any favors by just talking about arts education um, for a number of reasons. First of all, arts education has gotten defined very, very narrowly. So it's the four disciplines, right? Um, music, visual art, theater, and dance. Please, where's playwriting? Where's poetry? Where's, you know. Circus. Circus, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So let's do away with that nonsense of so narrow and so tight. But also, you know, you guys run a front of house program I mean, so, you know, there's engineering, there's set design, there's dramaturge, there are, you know, there's a whole group of people who are, a group of people in a whole way of being about it. But the, I think the, the thing that has been so much on my mind in this turbulent period and then it has really sent me back to go or even way before go is we really have to think about which children we say can have an imagination and which children can develop that imagination because if you look at either of those questions um, you can see that structurally we put in place so many practices that say you yes you no Um, and it is not just the case in arts education but it's true in science. Who gets to be a neuroscientist? Um, it's true in the design and architecture world. Who gets to, you know. So I think we all have to lock arms and recognize that it's a much bigger question of what I like to all imagination justice um, than just the arts. Um, And, you know, you think about a city like New York, city like Boston, only certain programs have gifted, only certain schools have gifted programs in them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is that about? Boston, Starting in fourth grade, I'm sure they don't call it this anymore, but some schools have what they call advanced work classes. 
which means sort of accelerated. And it's true in, in New York, you have to test to get into the gifted and talented. So at four years of age, kids, some kids are getting tutored, take the gifted test. So they get into a gifted kindergarten and, you know, they're on their way to Stuyvesant. Mm -hmm. So what did we learn today? Eight black students in the entering class at Stuyvesant. Mm -hmm. That began way, way, way before the test for high school. Um, and, you know, we really have to look at and change the practices. What's wild when I I read those statistics, like I remember a couple, I think it was last year or the year before where they were wanting to change it and uh, change the test and change the admission system and everybody was up in arms and nothing really changed. Um, uh, and then there was this other conversation about basically pitting, um, you know, all the different kids of color against each other as opposed to looking at the system of like, who are the people who are making selections for these kids? What are the opportunities for everybody to be able to, you know, apply for, for being in one of these quote unquote, you know, specialized school, high schools. Um, and yeah, you know, I have a, I have a, a cousin whose, whose child is in Stuyvesant and, and likely, you know, one of those nine that was admitted I don't know, however many years ago. Um, and, you know, hopefully is thrive. I mean, I want him, I want him to thrive. I want that. I want that for all kids, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, I remember when my cousin told me this and I immediately went to like, what was that like? Like, what did you do yeah. to make sure your child could have that access? And, you know, I also know like how, you know, loving you know there's a lot of things I know about that family but at the same time like what must it be like to actually attend that school when you hear something because sometimes you hear from the students about what it's like to be there and how othered they are or how they're made to feel like they didn't actually work as hard as somebody else to get there and and that's just not okay at all you know, and that, that goes back to something that you and I were talking about, I think, before we started recording about creating opportunity, like opening a space for people who identify as black or indigenous or Latinx or Asian um, in spaces that tr traditionally have not been opened, but then not necessarily creating an environment that is a place where one could feel safe or thrive and having to sort of like, like the narrative of like, well, I just push through or the narrative of like, I, I do what I got to do so that it gets me this other thing like that. Again, going back to, you know, just thinking through how are we creating an abolitionist world and not, you know, lowering all, all, um, you know, things that could be putting someone in harm's way and harm can look like a lot of different ways, it's not just physical violence, right? 
Yeah, we're just um, hoarding. Hoarding, yes. I mean, extracting and hoarding is definitely a hoarding opportunities, yes. hoarding knowledge. I mean, you and I were talking before about this internship program that places young people in arts and cultural organizations as interns. And um, part of what the sponsors hope for is that young people come out with a set of both college and career skills. Um, and you know, two years ago, I would have sort of approached that as, okay, let's give them a curriculum about oral communication and let's make sure everybody gets it and everybody has a chance to practice and then we'll see what happens at the end. And I think the events of the last two years have just like, I don't know, either turned that inside out or ripped it up. Because right now, I think it's, I think about it so differently. I think about, okay, what are the assets that young people are bringing? What are the limitations of the way we usually talk about oral communication? What are the ways in which young people could look at the sort of usual measures and say, well, no, no, I want to be my authentic self in this interview. And what could they bring to those standard rubrics or measures it would actually enrich them or even tear them up or reorganize them and shouldn't we be using that experience as a platform for saying this is what you can do need to do are capable of doing with anything like this that you encounter, yeah. ask of it, to what extent is it gonna, to what extent can I make it capture who I am? And to what extent can I bring to it something that that system needs to know or understand? I mean, like none of the standard rubrics for doing a good interview make any mention of asking questions. Now, what could be more important than knowing how to ask questions in an interview as an interviewee? Not as the interviewer, but as the interviewee, either say, asking somebody, could you say that a different way? Because I didn't understand it. or I hope to do X here. Will there be that chance? You know, all of those kinds of things. Nowhere, nowhere is that a part of what's thought of as good interview behavior. Or something. But 
so many things we need to flip the lid on. Um, and I am totally counting on being able to work with young people this summer to, to reorganize those things, to, to think about them very differently. Not for me to bring in, you know, a measure. Oh, you've fallen a little short. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I find that fascinating. Like I'm not in the sort of youth and engagement, um, like the creative youth engagement field as much. Um, and the idea of like that, what you're talking about is, is from a social justice perspective, I think questioning you know you're talking about it in context of a very specific you know growth area or, or potential growth area but the idea of questioning the idea of, of questioning authority because in that in that particular dynamic to ask quest a question when not actually asked do you have any questions about the role or the job yeah. or the you know the company but to say uh, to create opportunities for young people to understand that it's okay to ask questions because there is this other, potentially there's this other norm in society that tells you you're supposed to already know everything, even if you've never been given the experience or given the opportunity to learn, you're already supposed to. So the idea of asking some sort of question, like the way you sort of framed it, like there's another, there's a social component that also has to come with that about how, how it's okay to ask questions, period. <laughs> and, and how to approach it that helps you and the interviewer, you know, cause they want you to be the, 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 the candidate. Right. So, but, but the, I, I wonder if that's a part of it too. Like I remember this is something slightly different than where I was going, but I remember being in um, like an audition workshop long, long time ago with my acting coach and the way she sort of framed it was like, when you walk in the door, they want you to be the right, the one for the role. Um, so, you know, all those nerves and all that, those other things you can sort of figure out how to deal with and come in like as relaxed as possible, you know, all those, all those sort of things. So I'm also wondering about, actually, I'm wondering about that, like in your designing uh, this sort of, is it, is it curriculum? I don't know what, what, what it is, but in, in the design. Yeah. Oh, in oh, I see what you're saying. So like, here's another point to maybe look for, I guess, as you're asked, being asked to evaluate it is what are some relaxation techniques so that you can feel grounded and feel focused and, and, you know, work through those nerves. Cause I, I mean, as somebody who has interviewed young people in the past, you know, and coming from a, um, you know, this is, they're generally coming into a learning program. So it's hopefully not as scary, but it can, it certainly can be. And you can't know that from their perspective. Right. But um, 
you can tell the young people who have been prepped and what they've been prepped for. And you can tell those who, you know, they just want to, they just like where you are, like this thing. They're, they're not exactly sure what they want. And those are tend to be the people that we might gravitate towards because it's like, oh, like who's going to get the most out of this program. But I don't know if that's the way everybody thinks about it. Right. Like it's, there are spaces where somebody's like, we have a role. It's called an apprenticeship. It's called, you know, a fellowship, but really they're looking for somebody to be another staff person who's just not going to get paid as well. So then you're, you've got like, you've got this candidate or that candidate, and then you end up hiring the one who's either close, more closely aligned or has already has all the skills that you're looking for because you don't have the time to train them or you don't have, you know, and as opposed to like, but this person, if you, you know, cultivate and foster and share and open up space to this person, like how could that opportunity shape that, that human, but also shape whatever field or whatever, you know, this world ends up looking like you don't know. Um, and like to try and reframe the thinking from that, even, even, you know, it doesn't even matter who, you know, what the identity is of the, of the interviewer is. Um, it's, it's, I'm fascinated by this actually, cause I feel like it's a metaphor for almost anything that we want to talk about. Yeah, but I mean, it is so much about whether and how we'll, we'll do the hard work of learning how to redistribute opportunity and, and power. Um, I mean, I have to interview um, a young woman on, on Monday and I was, she sent me a resume and blah, blah, blah and her paper and all that kind of stuff. And I was writing her an email to say, I got it. Thank you very much. And then I thought, you know, I know the three questions I'm going to ask her. Mm-hmm. Why am I hoarding them? Yeah. Why don't I say when we meet on Monday, here are the three questions that I'd love to talk to you about? Because I swear every other time, I go into it like, oh, I have these three crafty questions and, you know, let's see if they can think on their feet. No, let's see if given a genuine conversation, given generosity or even-handedness, they can knock it out of the park. That, I mean, that, I mean, that happened like two hours ago. And I realized, you know, as a white privileged person, how there, how there are tens and thousands of those occasions that I have to sort of, it's like ripping the seam to mend something. I mean, you just have to take it all apart and think about it or try and think about it from the ground up. Um, 
years on my part, it's years and years and years of holding all the cards. Hmm. Anyway, so I mean, you know, if, if somebody were to say, you know, what have you been doing during the pandemic? You know, if I knew them well enough, I mean, you know, as in conversation with you, I mean, that's that's the real answer. Um, yeah, I do my job, but it's over. Re really, really trying, trying to. You you said earlier that you've been trying to teach yourself not to answer a question right away. Yeah. So it's it's like I mean. It's like changing a habit that you really, it's, it's hard to change. I mean, because you're a verbal alert person and it comes to you like that. Put pause and to really listen is hard. Yeah, I, I hope as, as things come back, that it's possible to hold on to that kind of pause or on my part, just putting the cards on the table. Um, and that it doesn't all just sort of get vacuumed back up to warp speed where we, you know, we lose that kind of yeah. pause. So how do, oh, how do we, how do we bring this to a finale, Courtney? Yes, I was, I was thinking about that. Thank you for asking. Um, I think, I think I want to ask you what, what do you want to ask me? <laughs> oh, uh, it's funny, I was thinking about coming into this conversation today, um, and I was thinking about you and your mom, mm. and also her choir. Yeah. Oh, you wanted to hear the story? Yeah. Because yeah. when, um, when she passed, um, you suggested that people make donations to the choir. So I was just curious about that. Yeah, I, I, I know it hasn't been that long, but I forgot about that. Um, when I was growing up, music was always playing in our house. Um, and my dad sang in our local church. Like I don't remember them, him not singing. And they would sing together. And in fact, that's how they met. Um, my dad. So I'm going to talk about my mom from my dad's perspective for a second, because my, uh, the story goes. My dad had moved uh, to Chicago for the summer. He had a he had a um, he was in college and he his father lived in Chicago and he was uh, going to school in Mobile, Alabama. And to get to know his father better, he would go 
up to Chicago and spend the summers and he had an internship somewhere. I I, want to say Nielsen, but I know he worked at Nielsen. I just can't remember if he had an internship there, but um, he had an internship and he was working at this company and um, this one of his coworkers invited him to um, uh, to this church sing along or whatever, like a jamboree situation. My dad was religious. He was very excited. He also, I think, might have had a crush on this woman. And so he was like, oh, I have a guitar. And my dad had taught himself how to play the guitar. So uh, he showed up early. He was very excited and um, was a little nervous. But then, uh, you know, sort of looking at the door, he was waiting for his coworker to show up. But he was trying his best to, you know, you know, be cool. And, uh, she finally shows up and she's got some other folks with her, other women with her. And, um, uh, he then wants to sort of impress. And so he starts, they, they're singing that's happening. I don't know what the songs are, but he starts playing and he's got a very, he's, he had a very beautiful voice. And, uh, this other woman, um, like went right up to sit next to him and was singing, you know, singing all the songs and really enjoying uh, herself and, and enjoying his company and his accompaniment and all that. And the coworker um, was sort of surprised by this behavior. That was her friend. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that person normally is quite shy and she was just like right there just in it. So there must've been something about the music. So I don't know if you could tell, <laughs> But mm, the the woman who like you know sat down next to my my dad was my mom, and the coworker was my aunt. Um, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, and uh, uh, according to my dad, she was like this beautiful angel who sat down next to her and was ha- and had a beautiful angelic voice, and they just hit it off. And I think he he must have asked her out and they went out and it turned out there was a very big age difference. And my mom was sort of like, this is just a kid. I don't know what's going on. I just was having a fun time singing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he, he was a very good letter writer. So he went back to college and he wrote her letters for the next year and came back at Christmas, I think, or, you know, like, and he would take a train. Like he told me, I didn't take a, a plane until I was married <laughs> until after I was married. So that he must've taken a train or a bus to get yeah. to and fro. And, um, yeah. So they dated for a little bit. And then, um, right when he graduated college, he asked her to marry him and she said, yes. Um, and since then they like, there's a picture, I have a picture over here of me, on my mom's lap, my sister and my dad playing a guitar. So singing, as I said, was just always a part of our, our lives. And so fast forward to my mom, um, moved into the city at a, at a certain point when I was about 12. Uh, the story goes <laughs> that, um, her job after she had gotten her, um, master's in library science, she, she had a year, uh, where she worked as a school librarian and working in the school sector, even though she, before she, um, while she was in grad school, she uh, worked as the AV lady at a middle school. Um, she realized as a librarian, like the school sector is not my jam. Um, so she ended up getting a job working at a, um, 
what do you call it? Like a, like a travel magazine as oh. their like go to like support for the reporters. And so she, anyway, so uh, she worked there for a, a long time. And at, at a certain point, the office moved from Manhattan into, into Secaucus, New Jersey. And so she was commuting from Long Island to New Jersey every day for about a year. And it was very challenging. And meanwhile, uh, you know, long story short in the, in the, like, this isn't really my story to tell, but their, their marriage wasn't doing great. And so they made the decision to split, but that the conversation was, this is going to be a commuter marriage. Your, your mom's going to live in Manhattan closer to her job and come home on the weekends. So we lived that life for, uh, uh, pretty much until I graduated college actually. Um, and, and in that time she, I don't know exactly how she got hooked up, but she started taking singing classes that singing the, I think the the music teacher was connected with a choir that there were, there was a group of them who then joined the choir plus the class. So she had built a very beautiful community of these people who love to sing and they would sing in this like amazing, like huge, epic <laughs> concerts and then they would also like like some of the images that I have is like they would also go to these senior centers at the holidays and sing at the and you know and they would have class and so at a certain point I joined the singing class because it was a great way for me to hang out with my mom um yeah so she just, I like singing was always just a thing for her and her family and his family and Music is what brings people together. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so it's when we were asking. young, yeah, we're, oh, thank you. And yeah, we, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily, I'm not trained as a singer, but I like, I love to sing. I don't, I, um, I would not call myself a singer, but I, uh, I remember, um, yeah, I just remember they were such a throwback people. They were so like of a time <laughs> too. Like they never felt contemporary to me. If that makes any sense. Like I feel like they they even 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 now like I look at them and I'm like the way they the way that my mom dressed, like it just never felt like it was of the now. It was it always felt like it sort of stopped at a certain point and that was her her style for the rest of her life. Same thing with him, uh, although he, he started wearing a hat when he got after he retired. But that was kind of it. Like, still, like, he had the same pair of jeans that he had since, like, 1982. I, it was just like, <laughs> anyway. Is your sister older or younger? Yeah, she's four years older. So she was, oh. she was born in Chicago. And then when oh. they moved to um, Long Island, it was before I was born. Um, and so she was, I think, one. <clears throat> he got a job he was supposed to be a business like science person. Um, he was actually probably supposed to be like a Stephen Hollowitz, like very methodical mathematic, like, like beautiful mind sort of genius in that way. Um, a lot of people thought he was a professor. That's, I mean, he was smart, very, very smart. Um, intelligent. Yeah. And, um, he, uh, got a job, as a math teacher, a calculus teacher, actually at, at a, at a school in Long Island. So they moved and we moved to Port Washington, which is, um, just the next school district. So I, so we didn't go to the same school. Thank God that would have been, but his reputation was 
larger than life. Like, so it did, like I was, I was Kurt body's daughter everywhere. I went, I was not Courtney body. (laughs) And with my mom, she was not, she was not somebody who needed to be in the spotlight. She was very happy being a part of a choir, right? Like joining, it wasn't about the solo. It was just about the camaraderie and the, the music making. She was much more, um, free it felt more free to be herself she was an interview an introvert and she was much more herself on a one-on-one basis and she was hilarious at, but you know it was rare that more people would know that because yeah. she she wasn't that person to like take up space in the a larger sense her space was I wouldn't say small. That's not it. But her space was like communal and her space was, I make room for others and I'm, I'm excited when you're excited. I'm intrigued when you're intrigued and I want to investigate more, but I don't have to be the spokesperson. I think that's why I can, I, I probably like confused her (laughs) because I was both. I was able to be like really targeted and focused on you. I mean, hello, look at what I do. Right. Um, but also, you know, I could stand in front of a thousand people and have this like moment and, and all is fine. And it's all, it's all kind of the same to me. It's not exactly the same, but it, it all feeds me. I have always really enjoyed listening to you, learning from you, seeing what you see in the work that I do has been revelatory to be honest with you and 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 I, I said this at the beginning like more than I could have known or understood at the time when we started uh, to work together and in this conversation I feel like I've gotten to know you know a friend deeper yeah in a way too. that I didn't realize that you know we could have we could have had this conversation a while ago but it, it's very special and meaningful to have it in this moment and yeah absolutely let's talk more all right. Thank you. Absolutely, Denny. Um, thank you. And I look forward to more conversation. Okay. Soon. Yeah. Take care. Huh? Take care. Yes. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode 44, act two of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Denny Palmer Wolf, Oxygen in the Bloodstream. Join us next time for a conversation with Kemi Josephs. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. John Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now.